Thank you for joining us today. My name is Haley Burridge. Today, our guest is Lisa Tamburini. Lisa is the Chief Compliance Officer of DeMeo Schneider & Associates, and she is here to talk to us about her experience in law school and what her legal path has been um, up until this point. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate we're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us. Thank you, Haley, for that nice introduction. Um, As Haley said, my name is Lisa Tamburini, and um, I'm the Chief Compliance Officer. I started in legal and compliance for financial services in 2003. I have an undergrad degree from Western Illinois uh, with political science, and then I went to Loyola's Institute for Paralegal Studies and obtained my paralegal certificate. And then I went to DePaul College of Law at night um, for my law degree. And after law school um, in the bar exam, um, my first job was to go in-house at Credit Agricole, which is a French bank for their hedge fund group. Uh, And then I went to a commodity trading advisor and pool operator. Then when I went to um, R&B Capital for wealth management and asset management, I expanded my knowledge base there because I um, mostly focused on private funds prior to joining R&B. And then I joined DeMeo February 3rd of this year. So we're new to DeMeo. They have financial services that I haven't worked in yet. So that was interesting to me, which is why I came to DeMeo. You did mention that you went to undergrad and then you went to Loyola to obtain your paralegal certificate. What made you decide to go to law school at that point in your career? I also am considered a non-traditional law student in that I worked in human resources for five years prior to attending law school. Lisa, it seems like you have a similar background. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to go to law school? Sure. My first job as a paralegal was at a large law firm um, downtown as a corporate paralegal. And at the time in the um, early 90s, there wasn't a whole lot of mobility. So I was going to be relatively young and and reach the top of my career as a paralegal. Um, So I I thought about different options, um, whether to go get a graduate degree or my law degree. I actually was lucky enough to find a job where I could work, and they helped paid for law school tuition, which was very attractive, of course. And then I went to law school at night, and it was more at the time because I wanted the ability to move move up and not kind of reach a ceiling where I can't go any higher, which at the time, paralegals really, um, you know, you're either a paralegal or a lawyer. The market has changed a little bit, including compliance becoming a a much bigger area for both paralegals and lawyers. Thank you for that, Lisa. So you mentioned um, that the market for paralegals and lawyers is obviously different now than it was. How do you specifically think there is more of a need now for individuals like yourself that have a background in compliance and can practice law? I think 
that's what's exciting about a law school education right now is there are a lot more opportunities. More and more industries are looking specifically for compliance professionals. And that's just naturally tied to the law and looking up rules and regulations and understanding where to go to get, get information. Kind of the traits that you need for compliance too. You ask a lot of questions, more inquisitive. You, you base your findings on uh, facts. You look at the rules from the regulators. What do you think are the pros and cons of working as a chief compliance officer? I know that we've had guests on the show this past year that have discussed their different career paths in the law, and they've been candid about some of the pros and cons. Specifically, traditionally in big law, you have to work longer hours, um, whereas some in-house roles, you might not make as much money. So those are just some of the things that our guests have shared in the past. What to you are some of the pros and cons for your position? Yeah, I think a pro, um, I'll start with the pros, the positive. Uh, you know, in the compliance industry, um, in financial services, in the early 2000 is when um, they changed the law to, to require financial services firms to have a CCO. And initially, you know, uh, it was just kind of, you had to have one, so people just kind of joined the profession. Now it's, be, it's been uh, well established um, that you need a, a sophisticated person in that position who has a lot of experience. I know one of the reasons in putting me to the top of the pile when I was interviewing was my law degree. Um, they had kind of sat down and said, what are the ideal characteristics we want as CCO? And one of them was, oh, we would prefer to have someone with a law degree versus other candidates who don't, especially when you have similar experience. So I definitely think that's a pro. You are, our hours are, it's a work-life balance is nice. Um, generally speaking, you know, it's eight to five. Um, sometimes there's overtime, but not necessarily a lot. Um, you know, they make, you know, considering it's an, an eight to five job, it's, it's well, you're well compensated for it. Um, but I do think, you know, in-house, the, the trade-off of being in-house is, um, you know, at law firms, you're going to make more money, but you're going to work a lot of long hours. So it's, it's kind of pros and cons in that, in that fashion. Your, your previous guests who have highlighted that, I think it's probably true in any kind of category of law, of in-house versus law firm. I also, what I like about being in-house is working directly with the business people. Mm -hmm. um, you learn the ins and outs of business. And so I think um, you can identify kind of the business risk and compare it to the laws and the regulations versus in how it, when you're in a law firm, um, you more know the rules, but you might not know all the business. Mm -hmm. um, and you might know the rules better than an in-house lawyer because you're doing the, the, you're looking at the rules all day, every day versus the lawyer slash CCO in-house is learning the business and applying the rules as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I do like that aspect of being in-house. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think knowing both is ideal. And although this is changing a little bit now, um, most law students still are going um, from undergrad straight to law school without any work experience. Um, so I know that for me, and I will and you've previously touched on this for yourself, um, having a background working in human resources was beneficial to me, not only um, as a student, but also when interviewing for jobs, because I do understand how some of my 
clients, my potential clients in the future, how their business operates to a certain extent Mm -hmm. um, without having, whereas other individuals have no real knowledge of that. So I do think that's important. Um, One of the things that we've touched on in the past on the Podvocate is that traditionally uh, law schools, not just Loyola, but all law schools, at least in the United States, they focus primarily on jobs for students at law firms or um, government positions. Um, There's not a lot of information out there for students that are interested in pursuing an in-house position or pursuing a role similar to yours. Um, And I think from our feedback from our listeners, that is something that they're really curious about because I think a lot of students now um, value work-life balance and being able to understand the business as well as the law. Whereas traditionally in the past, I think there was more focus on that just traditional law firm career path. What would you recommend to students that are interested in pursuing a career and eventually um, being a chief compliance officer in-house? Yeah, um, I think it's important. When I was in law school, I knew I did not want to be a litigator. And ideally, I knew I didn't want to work at a big law firm. Um, So I was actually, I think um, my previous work experience really is what sold me. And I went right from law school right in-house, which is very non-traditional as well. And and I think that was probably because of my experience in the legal sector. Um, Now, at law school, um, the classes I focused on, because I knew I didn't want to be a litigator, I knew I wanted to be transactional, I I took uh, corporate or business organizations, M&As, you know, transactional type classes. And I didn't take trial advocacy. I didn't take all the traditional litigation classes because I knew I didn't want to do that. So I focused on electives related to um, transactions. Securities law, I didn't take that. I should have. Um, but um, those type of classes are what I focused on in law school when I got to the point where I could take electives. As far as how do you get into um, the business, um, you know, there is a demand for compliance professionals and, and lawyers who are compliance professionals. Um, because of the demand, I think some a lot of law schools um, are kind of touching base with the uh, industry in Chicago, particularly, and reaching out and putting on events. I know a couple years ago, I spoke at Loyola Law. Um, they had a panel of different CCOs from not only financial services, but healthcare. Um, and then also other law schools put on events um, that usually you can go to as well as a student at a local law school um, within Chicago. Another option is there are a lot of good, um, you know, for professionals um, in the industry, there are a lot of good seminars. Sometimes, um, you know, they offer special rates or discounted rates for students. That's a good way to A, get some more um, specific knowledge on the topics that are interested in you, but it's also, they always have networking events at those events as well. I know Chicago, there's usually a couple big, even if it's for a day, maybe, and there's a couple multi-day seminars in Chicago um, for compliance professionals. Um, And, you know, that might be an option to reach, for students to reach out to those and see if they have a discounted rate for students. Um, So I think that's just definitely a good opportunity networking and knowledge. Yeah, I know um, for those listeners that are not familiar, uh, Loyola 
has an excellent compliance program and we also have a journal of regulatory compliance. I'm actually going to be the marketing symposium executive editor next year. Um, the symposium is a very well-known event, I would say, in the compliance industry, specifically within Chicago. Um, and we have guest speakers come to that event and present on a variety of different topics related to the main topic. Um, so I'm excited to work with them next year for the Spring 2021 Symposium. Tell us what an average day looks like for you, Lisa. I know that, um, especially for students without any experience, um, any position in the law after law school, it's kind of, it's difficult for uh, students to really picture what that's like. So give us an idea of what an average day looks like for you, please. Yes. Um, in turn, when you're in-house, in you know, you deal with a lot of different issues. Primarily, I deal with securities and regulation rules, investment advisor rules. Um, and that can be anywhere from uh, maybe a, a, what to do about a trade that didn't go through correctly to a client's coming in, reviewing their marketing pr presentation to writing a policy and procedure, you know, verifying that numbers we use on um, numbers we use on presentations are accurate and defendable to a regulator. Um, within compliance, one of the challenges I would say just in general is, you know, the regulators tend to put a lot on chief compliance officers, whether it's IT compliance, um, compliance related to performance numbers, uh, your policies and procedures. So you can see those are kind of, kind of three very different um, mindsets. Tech experience, um, kind of a math-based experience, and then a writing experience. So I tend to spend a lot more time on writing policies and procedures, or, uh, but that's naturally what I'm drawn to. Mm -hmm. um, others on my department who maybe come from a, a true finance and accounting background are, are checking the numbers and verifying that they're accurate before they go out on a marketing presentation. And then given the current circumstances that we're under, we play a, a compliance plays a big role in business continuity plans, including myself, where it's both policy driven, but it's also working with the IT team to make sure the firm can run outside of the office working from home. Um, and that's, that generally falls on compliance and IT. Um, no, that, that's interesting. It, well, it really is. It's hard when you're, you know, you have to really have a lot of different expertise or know enough to go to the experts in that area to get help. Um, and so that's really important that you can work well with your colleagues and make sure that you can get the information you need. First quarter is really um, big in filing um, regulatory reports. So when I first started at DeMeo, we had to file our 13F report. And then we went right away onto our ADV which our ADV is the form where we register to become an investment advisor. We registered years ago, but you have to file an amendment every year. By okay. the end of March, we spent a lot of our time, you know, verifying the facts that we put in that every year, making sure they didn't change, and then writing a disclosure document or updating a disclosure document. And the purpose of both of those is to give prospective clients information about your business. So the regulators will generally look at, you know, did you disclose everything that's required? 
Um, did you leave anything out that might be material to an, a client's final decision on whether to hire you? Um, so that, I would say the first quarter, wherever you are at an investment advisor, you spend a lot of time doing ADV updates, verifications, and filing regulatory reports. So that, at least to me, but it's probably different for someone like you who's had a lot of experience, seems like it's very stressful um, and really puts a lot of pressure on the chief compliance officer. I guess, how do you work with your team to manage that stress and work together? Do you rely on outside counsel ever? Um, or do you have people that work for you directly at um, DeMeo? Yeah, I have two people that work directly uh, with me. Um, they actually both come from a financial accounting background. So okay. uh, coming through um, undergrad, they had very different experience, which I, I like because I tend to be the writer um, and could spend all day writing. And they report directly to me. I also rely, we have outside counsel that I can bounce um, issues off of. We also are uh, a subsidiary of a large company, and they have lawyers and compliance professionals we can touch base with. And then as another step, I'm also working on rewriting our compliance manual a bit, or tweaking it, I should say. And we, we do have compliant, compliance consultants who, it's, their whole business is just providing advice to investment advisors, broker-dealers, all sorts of different um, types of financial services companies. And they are more, they're not lawyers, some might be lawyers, but they're more people who came from the regulator and then became consultants. Mm -hmm. um, and so they have, they might be able to say, you know, when I was at the SEC, we looked at this issue like XYZ and this is what we would tell you. So they more have kind of on the ground experience at the regulator traditionally speaking. And so that's why they're also a nice resource to use in addition to outside counsel. Because there's times when outside counsel and compliance consultants are going to disagree. Mm -hmm. And as a person who wears both hats, it's, you know, could be a challenge. So for example, you know, the lawyers uh, might give you the advice, like under the law, you can do X, Y, Z. And the compliance professionals would say, well, yeah, maybe you could do that under the law, but your policies and pr procedures prevent you from doing that. Okay. So, um, then you have to decide what you're going to do to resolve the issue. Okay, wow. Seems like there's a lot of collaboration, which is fairly unique, I would say, for the practice of law, um, to work with all those different groups to come to solution while working in-house for a company. So that's, that's very interesting. So another question that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are interested in hearing the answer to is how has your position, if at all, changed since the COVID-19 pandemic? A lot of it actually, it's, it's, it's actually as tragic as the whole situation has been for our country and the world. It's been an interesting experience. It's interesting to see what the regulators are doing and responding to their requests. For example, as I said, the ADV is usually done and filed at the end of March, but because of the impact of the COVID-19, in response to the COVID, the regulators, um, the SEC in particular, um, gave um, investment advisors uh, more guidance on how they, could, if they needed an extension, what they needed to, to do. And, and that was directly related to what was going on in the country. And so keeping up with all these new rules coming out, um, at one point they were coming out daily depending on what part of the business you're in and whether it impacted you or not. So 
it's lately it's been about with COVID-19 it's about responding on reviewing new regulations but it's also coordinating and collaborating with your colleagues through video or through phone calls to get your filings completed now we did file we filed ours a day early actually we spent a lot of time early in the process so we were pretty close to done before we even started working from home um, so that's kind of how COVID-19 impacts the kind of regulatory environment. It's just, it's so severe that actually regulators are keen to work with you and work with the industry. Because some investment advisors, maybe their whole compliance team was sick or in the hospital or you just never know. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, and compliance is generally speaking um, responsible for filing the ADV. Um, and so that's why they, the regulators had to or thankfully came out with some guidance for companies that were in that situation. The second big thing that I've spent with COVID-19 is really, I've spent a lot of time on, on business continuity in our plans, which is more than you normally would do because normally you have a business continuity plan and we all hope we never have to use it. But in this case, we did have to use it as did almost every other investment advisor in the country. So reviewing those policies and procedures, working with colleagues to make sure they have everything they need. So that's really how COVID-19 has impacted both the new regulations and business continuity plans. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I imagine that almost every company, regardless of whether or not they're tied to um, investment management or not, has to deal with business continuity, definitely. And then the, the changing laws, which seem to be changing almost every day. So on the bright side, I would say that lawyers everywhere are dealing with new issues and being challenged in new ways, which can both be a blessing and a curse, but it's exciting and definitely does not make your job boring. <laughs> no, not at all. Lisa is also a senior adjunct lecturer at Loyola University Chicago School of Law's Institute for Paralegal Studies. Lisa touched on earlier her experience attending Loyola's um, Institute for Paralegal Studies and working as a paralegal. But now she has the privilege of teaching Loyola students. So tell us a little bit about that, Lisa, for listeners that are interested in working in the legal industry but aren't sure if going to law school is right for them. Thanks, Haley. Um, I do, I've been teaching at uh, Loyola's Institute for Paralegal Studies since 2012. I also graduated, as you noted, um, and I went to the paralegal program, and I never thought I would be a lawyer. I was like, oh, I'm never going to be a lawyer. I want to be a paralegal. And then I got into the profession and realized I wanted to be a lawyer. I think there are paralegals that kind of go down that track and think, wow, I'm not sure if I want to be a lawyer. I don't want to be a lawyer. And then discover that they do want to be a lawyer. And they go to paralegal school and just to see if they think they'll be like being a lawyer or if they want to put the, you know, law school is a big commitment and a lot of money. Um, And so it's a good way to see if you're interested in going to law school. Um, The other route, a lot of paralegals who are at Loyola's program, they tend to go to their program maybe as a second career. Maybe they've had a first career, always been interested in the law, so they decide that they want to go to paralegal school and become a paralegal, Um, maybe just depending on where they are in their career. If they're later in their career, you know, law school might be off the table, so, but they like, they have an interest in the law and legal and working in a law school, uh, law firm environment or in-house environment. 
So that's the second type of um, student we typically see. And then you still see students who are right out of college as well. Some end up going to law school, some don't. I think what's great, again, about compliance is a lot of paralegals, I've encouraged some of my students at, at paralegal school to, to enter the compliance profession because, you know, there isn't a ceiling. You don't have to have a law degree to be a CCO. Mm -hmm. um, it sets you apart if you do. Um, but, you know, if you're dynamic and you work hard and you have a lot of great experience and you're a paralegal, you certainly could be a CCO. So I think that's a nice option for paralegals um, who maybe want that upward mobility without going to law school. Um, and I also, same as with law students, you know, paralegal students, um, you know, learn a lot about the law and they can apply it to the compliance profession. Um, so I've, I've encouraged a lot of my students to go into the compliance profession. And I know a lot of them have gone into the compliance profession. I've even hired one of my former students. <laughs> it's just a natural, naturally leads itself to the compliance profession. And how is the program set up? I believe it's a year and a half. I, I don't know how many, I apologize, I don't know how many credit hours, but um, I think you can get done in a year. Okay. But unlike law school where you generally get done in three years, I don't think there's a set timeline. Okay. Maybe there is, but you take one or two classes a session. What's different from the law school is they're in eight-week sessions, so the classes maybe are shorter. So I, when I teach, I teach one night a week for three hours for eight weeks. Um, and so you can get more classes in, but they're just longer when you're there. You briefly touched on that some of your students are entering the program as a second career while other students are coming straight from undergrad. Um, would you say it's, it's usually equally split among those two groups of individuals? Yeah, I would actually. I would say um, equally split. You know, and that, uh, some other students, most of the students are working full-time too, uh, or most of the students I have are working full-time. Um, there's also day classes, so if you mm -hmm. wanted to go during the day and get done sooner, you can, but since I teach at night, most of my students are also working, and so it's a it's just a mix it literally at times is half and half just depending on kind of the class and what made you decide to um be a senior adjunct lecturer in addition to working full-time you know when i entered the profession uh in compliance i i kind of just ran with it because i got it was the first job i got out of law school and i crossed my fingers and hoped i liked it turned out turns out i did it's a great profession um the same would be true about teaching I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, I just never took that route for whatever reason. A professor couldn't teach um, that session. And so since I went to Loyola and um, they knew me, they called me and just asked me uh, if I would be interested in teaching um, a session um, in the fall. And this was maybe the spring before. And um, I thought, sure, why not? And one of the reasons I did it was for my own professional growth where I found that I really struggled at times to speak in front of a, a room full of people because again, we go back to, I'm not a litigator. I like to just, you know, I don't like to speak in front of big, big groups. So one of the ways I thought it might be in addition to liking to teach and to have working with my students and helping them uh, further their careers is uh, it would get me uh, used to speaking in front of larger groups and it would uh, help me practice speaking in front of those groups 
um, and the more you do it, the more comfortable you get. And so I just thought that would be um, really helpful for me. Turns out my first class was my largest class ever. I had 31 <laughs> students, 31, and I was terrified because, you know, they'd ask a lot of great questions and you're just standing there like, oh my gosh, um, I don't know all the answers, but I'll get back to you. Um, and then also my parents were both teachers, so I relied on them to kind of give me words of wisdom when I was teaching. So that was helpful too. That's such a good idea. I think a lot of us, even those that are interested in um, practicing litigation, public speaking, I think is up there with, with most people's number one fear. And doing that, I, it's just such a great idea. When I was younger, I enrolled in um, Second City courses in high school to help me because I used to be very shy. And that helped me a lot. So that's, I like, I love that story. That's great. Yeah. We're going to wrap up our um, discussion today, but I always like to end with any last comments or advice that you would like to give to our listeners um, who are primarily Loyola University Chicago School of Law students, but we also get listeners from throughout the U.S. Yeah, one thing I would I think that's really important um, to the compliance profession is also, we talked a little bit about it earlier, Haley, is collaboration. You know, oftentimes um, compliance departments, whether it's in financial services or other areas of the economy, get a reputation for being business killers, where business goes and we all say no. And and you don't want to get that reputation. I wouldn't want that from my compliance department. And I'll tell you why is that if, if your answer is always no, uh, and people don't want to come to you, um, they're just going to do it anyway. And so I think if you have an approach where you're collaborative, people like coming to you, people trust your ability to find solutions, then um, it creates an environment of compliance, which um, I think as a CCO will be more, more successful at because you're working with the groups to find solutions and working as a team versus just when people come to you, you say no. Um, and that to me, in my personal opinion, is a difficult situation because then people are just going to be like, why am I going to ask? She's just going to say no. Now there are times, don't get me wrong, you have to say no. But again, if it's 20 yeses and only one no, um, you know, people can live with that. It's just whenever you can't always say yes and you can't always say no, you know, you have to be careful and in setting the tone of compliance to be able to provide the advice to the business unit so that they'll utilize your expertise and want to come involve you as part of the team. So the goal really is for compliance to be part of the team, not the obstacle. Great. Yeah, that's great advice. I think the same in different ways goes for HR. When I used to work in HR, sometimes people think of us as the enemy. And I think that successful human resource departments, they work with the other business groups and practice areas instead of against them. And like you mentioned, there's obviously times where you you have to be the bad guy per se. Um, but I think that trying to work with the business in general will always will make everyone happier and will make the business in general more successful. Thank you for joining us today, Lisa. Thank you, Haley. It was my pleasure. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thank you again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Allrutz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. 
Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman, and our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thank you to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing us the resources and support to make the show possible. And thank you to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.